0: Walt Disney by Neil Gabler, Chapter 34. Strike, 6 a.m. today, read the first entry in Walt Disney's desk diary on May twenty eighth, though with the extension, the strike actually began the next day. The atmosphere that morning was both festive and festering. Sorrel had the picketers crowding the gate, while loudspeakers blasted music and messages at the employees driving through. Ward Kimball, who kept a diary, wrote, "'Cars stopped all the way along Buena Vista Street, which fronted the studio. The guys were pouring their individual speeches into the ears of those on the fence. Kimball was struck by the magnitude of it all. As one might have expected from animators, the picket signs were colorful.' one striker sat on a knoll in a smock and beret and painted the scene others sang and yelled as kimball entered the gate babbitt collared him and told him that the scg had placed supervising animators like kimball under its jurisdiction in entering the studio he was defying the union As Walt himself entered the gates that morning, easing his way through the throng in his Packard and genially waving to the strikers, Babbitt grabbed a megaphone from actor John Garfield, who was on the picket line to support the strike, and yelled, "'Walt Disney, you should be ashamed of yourself!' Then, as Babbitt told it, he turned to the crowd and shouted, "'There he is, the man who believes in brotherhood for everybody but himself!' When the crowd cheered, Walt bolted from the car and took off after Babbitt until he was restrained. Walt was much more sanguine behind the studio's gates. Kimball was taking lunch in the women's cafeteria and saw Walt there beaming. Later that afternoon, he called several of the non-striking animators and storymen to his office. Blow-ups of photographs of the strikers were already arranged around the room, and as Walt passed them, he commented, "'Damn, I didn't think he'd go against me, or we can get along without him.'" As Jack Kinney recalled, "'We got the uneasy feeling that he was filing his feelings away in his prodigious memory for some future revenge.'" Meanwhile, Lessing appeared and said that he thought the strike would last only 24 hours. Walt broke out a bottle of Harvey's Bristol cream for a toast. Exactly how many people were striking depended on which side was doing the counting. Babbitt claimed that of the, fo- that of the 500 employees in positions over which the Guild had jurisdiction, 472 signed with the union and 410 of those had gone on strike. James Bodero, who headed the rival American society, American Society of Screen Cartoonists said that 735 workers fell under Guild jurisdiction and 435 of those were still working. Lessing told the New York York Times that only 293 employees were on strike. The Guild itself estimated that 700 employees were on strike. Most of them were the lower paid workers, in-betweeners, assistants, inkers. Only two of the supervising animators, Babbitt and his "'his close friend Bill Titla struck. "'The others,' said one animator, "'were indoctrinated by Disney. "'They grew up there. "'Walt, insisting that the unrest was no fault of his own, "'branded the strikers malcontents, "'the unsatisfactory ones who knew that their days were numbered "'and who had everything to gain by a strike.' Writing Walt shortly after the strike began, a former employee commiserating with his old boss wistfully recalled the good old days when we had a big happy family all packed into a small building. In those days, every man in the organization had the good old do or die for Disney spirit. Then, when the company grew, he said, a feeling of working for personal gain started creeping in. The present condition seemed inevitable." Success necessarily destroyed comedy, but Walt, for whom the shattered piece now meant shattered dreams, did not think it had been inevitable. As he analyzed it, his utopia had been despoiled not by the inel- but not by the ineluctable forces of, corporatis- of corporatism, but by a few rotten apples manipulated by a few determined ideo- ideologues. He may not have believed, as did Leon Schlesinger at Warner Brothers, that his employees loved him, but he did believe that they were dedicated to the greater good of animation and to the artistic community he had created. It hurt him, Ward Kimball said of the strike, because guys he had trusted were letting him down. Walt saw himself as benevolent, and he thought that after he had kept nearly everyone on the payroll, even during the Depression, the the angry workers were ingrates for calling a strike just because he demanded a secret ballot. It made no sense to him that they were chafing over a few relatively minor grievances. The only explanation that made sense was that they— Hilberman, Sorrell, Babbitt, and others were communists or communist sympathizers bent on destroying Walt Disney. Commie sons of bitches was how Walt put it. This would always be the Disney version of the strike. The studio had not had no labor troubles until, as Walt later put it, the commies moved in. Roy concurred. Money was never the basic problem in this thing, he said, as much as communism. In this view, Walt, who was politically naive, was no doubt fed by Gunther Lessing, but he was also influenced by right-wing government agencies that had a political stake and blaming communists for labor unrest. Walt said he showed his photographs of the strikers to the FBI and to representatives of the House Committee on Un-American Activities, which investigated communism, and was told that the strikers were professional instigators. Anthony O'Rourke drafted a letter for Walt's signature inviting California State Senator Jack Tenney, who chaired a fact-finding committee on un-American activities in that state, to investigate the, the affiliations of the strike leaders, and the FBI had a dossier on Herbert Sorrell listing him as a registered member of the Communist Party, despite his claims to the contrary. I had a lot of people just hoping that it was the end, you know, Walt would say, meaning communists wanting to take Walt Disney down." Though it was a typical anti-labor tactic at the time to brand unions as communists to delegitimize them, Walt's belief that the SCG was communist-inspired was undoubtedly sincere. It also may not have been entirely wrong. Arthur Babbitt certainly wasn't a communist, nor were any of the other animators, but Dave Hilberman, the assistant who had begun organizing the studio, had by his own admission been a member of the Communist Party and had even traveled to Russia when he was a young man. Moreover, an FBI report called William Pomerance, soon to be the union's business manager, one of the leading communists in the movie industry, and claimed that at least since July 1941, a month after the strike began, the union had followed the communist party line. Citing an internal source close to the labor situation, the report concluded that the Disney strike proved conclusively that the SCG was communist-dominated and said that the communists threw the entire strength of the communist machine in Hollywood into the dispute. True or not, all of this provided Walt with a convenient excuse for holding the line against the SCG. It also excused him from having to deal with the very real dissatisfactions that had been building at the studio. Now, despite Lessing and Walt's optimism, both sides hunkered down for a long siege. Sorrell had set up strike headquarters across the street from the studio on a little swell in a grove of eucalyptus trees where a kitchen with camp stoves was erected by Warner Brothers carpenters and manned by striking Disney cafeteria workers. One striker compared the line of cars crawling up the hill to something out of the Grapes of Wrath. It made for a picturesque scene, but then this seemed to be a picturesque strike. Pickets held signs reading Michelangelo, Raphael, Titian, Rubens, Da Vinci, and Rembrandt all belong to guilt, or no wise quacks with a picture of Donald Duck, we want our guilt, or Snow White and the 700 Dwarves, or one genius against 1,200 guinea pigs. Another sign featuring Pinocchio said, No strings on me, and, w- and one with Mickey Mouse declared, Are we men or mice? The left-wing newspaper PM called it the most unique picket line in labor's history. Film stars walked the line to show support. Leon Schlesinger let his animators out early to picket and harass Disney, and one day, Schlesinger himself drove up to the line, prompting a union spokesman at the loudspeaker to announce, Herb Sorrell is now speaking to Leon Schlesinger, "'who has signed a very nice agreement with the cartoonists' guild. "'Driving through the crowd each morning, "'Walt seemed, in Babbitt's words, very jaunty. "'One day, according to Ollie Johnston, "'he even stood near the entrance with his coat over his arm "'and his hat tilted back on his head, "'smiling at the strikers and making quips.' But if the strike began with a certain gaiety, it soon turned ugly and violent as both sides realized that O'Rourke's prediction, notwithstanding, no settlement was imminent. Strikers would yell at the workers entering the gate. Mighty uncomplimentary things, Dick Humor remembered, like how one guy was an alcoholic or something. Jack Kinney recalled strikers letting air out of tires or scratching cars with screwdrivers as non-strikers drove onto the lot. Occasionally there were fist fights and kinney said that some shots were fired. Walt asked the Burbank Police Department for fifty officers, but the chief declined, saying that he couldn't post that many men without the union's cooperation for fear of a confrontation. Instead, Walt hired 50 former Los Angeles policemen to try to push away the pickets until the Burbank chief ordered them inside the studio gates. At a mass rally and parade in front of the studio early that June, Gunther Lessing was hung in effigy while the American Federation of Labor, AFL, formed a flying squadron to picket picket theaters showing Disney films. With the negotiations continuing fitfully, the union increased the pressure. The AFL put all Disney films and products on its unfair list, Soundmen refused to cross the picket line, and perhaps worst of all, the lab technicians at Technicolor refused to process Disney film until the studio recognized the Guild. A scheduled preview of The Reluctant Dragon, Walt's testament to Studio Harmony, had to be canceled because the American Newspaper Guild, which represented reporters, asked them not to attend, and when Walt did release the film late that, June, picket lines were thrown up at the RKO and Pantages Pantages theaters in Los Angeles, while a parade of Guild sympathizers in New York marched down Broadway to the Palace Theater, where the film was playing, and set up another picket line. Still, Walt remained intransigent. He continued to insist that he would recognize the SCG only if it were elected by secret ballot, a call that the union again rejected, this time not only because a majority of the workers were on strike, prima facie evidence that the SCG already represented the workers, but because there was no impartial agency to conduct the election and count the votes and because it clearly distrusted Walt to do so fairly. At the same time, during daily negotiations late that June, Walt agreed to reinstate the workers he had dismissed in May, except Art Babbitt, while warning that there were more layoffs to come. This was also rejected unanimously by the union board. Despite the impasse, Walt still seemed oddly jovial, writing a journalist that we feel very much like the young couple having their first baby and ridiculously telling another reporter that the studio had actually increased its output during the strike because it had gotten rid of dead wood, doubtful talent, and green hands. But Walt never despaired of finding a way around the union. At one point, Dave Hand, Ben Sharpstein, Wilfred Jackson, and others met. One of them would say, with Walt's knowledge, to discuss disbanding the studio altogether and forming another one headed by Roy and Walt, but without any union involvement. At another point, Bill Titla, who had gone out on strike but nevertheless felt a deep allegiance to Walt, happened to see Walt at a local diner and approached him, saying he thought the whole thing was foolish and unnecessary. Brightening, Walt suggested that Titla come back to the office where they might hammer out a solution the way Walt might solve a problem on a film. Titla agreed, but wanted first to go home, shower, and change. By the time Titla arrived at his house, Walt had phoned Titla's wife and told her the meeting was off. Titla believed someone had gotten to Walt, presumably Lessing. At roughly the same time, after the union had rejected Walt's proposals, quite possibly the most notorious figure in Hollywood arrived on the scene. IATSE head Willie Beoff was a moon-faced, jolly little man with hexagonal wire-rimmed glasses and an ever-present cigarette dangling from his lips. It was Beoff whom Babbitt had so feared two years earlier when he... When he had met with Lessing about forming the federation, since that time Bioff had been indicted on federal racketeering charges, but that seemed to have little effect on his power. Beoff's IATSE was the rival of Sorrel's CSU. Whether Walt contacted Beoff to help broker a settlement, Beoff was famously tight with the studios, or whether Beoff volunteered as a way to undercut Sorrel is unclear. And there's a no here. Walt later claimed that Bioff got involved when Sorrell asked the IATSE leader to call out projectionists, whom Beoff represented, all over the country wherever Disney films were playing. That was when Beoff offered his services to resolve the strike. However it happened, on June 30th, Bioff reached a quick settlement with Disney, then had one of his lieutenants approach the strike leaders at the Union's Hall on the corner of Sunset and Highland and request a meeting at the Roosevelt Hotel. All of them piled into a car and set off for the conclave, only realizing once they were on the road that they were being taken not to the Roosevelt Hotel, but rather to Bioff's ranch in the San Fernando Valley. Hilberman, fearing what Beoff might do in the privacy of his home, demanded that the driver stop the car and then jumped out. When the rest arrived, Roy, Lessing, and Bill Garrity were waiting for them along with Beoff, who announced that if they signed with the IATSE, they could go back to work in the morning. Babbitt said he was even offered a $50 raise and time off whenever he wanted it. But like Walt's March speech, the meeting had exactly the opposite effect to resolving the strike. The strikers were incensed that Walt had involved the racketeer Beauf and rejected the offer, after which the studio announced that it was breaking off all negotiations with SCG. He honestly tried to settle it, Walt would say of Beauf, but when Sorrow rebuffed him, it proved to me that Sorrow is dirty, sneaky, and as foul as they come, and there is no doubt but he is a tool of the communist group.' A week after the off fiasco, the federal government offered to step in, and Stanley White, an officer from the Conciliation Services of the Department of Labor, flew into Los Angeles to confer with the parties and see if he could mediate an agreement. He recommended binding arbitration by a a three-man panel during which the strikers would return to work. The SCG at a mass meeting unanimously accepted the offer. Lessing, however, rejected it, saying that yet another reformed company union, the Animated Cartoon Associates, really represented the workers and fuming that the NLRB had meddled in the company's affairs, even contacting its bankers to press for a settlement, and that the NLRB's actions warranted a congressional investigation, and he once again accused the union of being communist. Then, suddenly and unexpectedly, on July 23rd, Lessing reversed himself and wired the conciliation service, accepting its mediation offer. The Disneys clearly had not softened. They still vehemently believed that the SCG was a Trojan horse to take over the studio. But they now had another force to reckon with, a force even more resolute than Sorrell. As Sorrell later told it, Stanley White, the federal conciliator, had called him, hoping to break the stalemate, and recommended they contact the Bank of America, which was what Lessing had accused the NLRB of doing. Sorrell, who happened to know A.P. Giannini from the time Sorrell had lived in Oakland, phoned him and was referred to Doc Giannini, A.P.'s brother. White then arranged to meet with Doc Giannini. "'Sorrell wouldn't strike for anything that he couldn't win at arbitration,' Giannini said, and suggested that it would soon be resolved. When White asked if Disney, after weeks of obstinacy, would agree, Giannini answered, "'I guarantee he'll arbitrate or he won't have any studio.' The strikers returned to work as the arbitration began, and a tentative settlement was reached on July 30th. The strike was over.' Or so it seemed." The sides had agreed to wage wage increases, 10% for artists earning less than $50 a week, 100 hours of back pay for the strikers, reinstatement of the fired workers, including Babbitt, and of course, recognition of the SCG as the bargaining agent for most of the studio's employees. Future layoffs were to be decided by a joint committee to be agreed upon, but Babbitt was expressly excluded from termination. Some workers were stunned. I went from $32.50 a week to $65 a week for the same job, recalled camera operator Bob Broughton. My pay just doubled overnight. Walt, however, was not happy. Writing columnist Westbrook Pegler who had asked for Walt's version of events, he called the strike a catastrophe that had destroyed the spirit of the studio. Without mentioning the Bank of America, he groused that he had had to settle, but insisted I'm not licked, I'm incensed. His eyes were now open to what is happening to our government today, presumably communist infiltration, and with so many workers now and so little work, he said he might have to close the studio for a time to survive. But Walt wouldn't be there for the pain of layoffs. Instead, he left. Stay tuned for more next Monday.